Red Hook, Brooklyn is one of those New York City neighborhoods that might fall under the radar. It's a waterfront community that's a more than 20-minute walk from the nearest subway station. Some people might only know it because it's home to an IKEA furniture store. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This week, we're heading to Red Hook. If you've never been, we'll help set the scene. As we mentioned, Red Hook is on the water and offers amazing views of New York Harbor and the Statue of Liberty. It's home to industrial warehouses and mom-and-pop shops, as well as a large concentration of public housing. And upon spending some time there, we came to realize it has a very rich sense of community, one that truly showed itself after Superstorm Sandy battered the neighborhood in 2012. Our first guest has one heck of a Sandy story. Barry O'Mara co-owns a bar in Red Hook, one with an interesting name for a watering hole. It's called Red Hook Bait and Tackle. I recently caught up with Barry there. Now, this is, of course, called Red Hook Bait and Tackle, but I can't pick up any sandworms here, right? Um, not at all. When we first got the lease of the bar in 2000, of the space in 2001 when we decided to open the bar, we got a, a, a letter from the building department saying that there was a $6,000 fine because nobody got the permit to put up this um, bait and tackle sign that was outside, which because it was a bait and tackle shop slash social club. So when we, if we were to take down the sign, we'd have had to pay the $6,000 and then get a $5,000 permit to put up a new sign. So we figured out that was the name of the bar very easily. So just leave it up. It's easier and cheaper. Uh, very, very much so. What do you know about the history of the bait and tackle shop, its previous life? Um, the bait and tackle shop was owned by my landlords. It was pretty much, he's a Puerto Rican gentleman, and um, it was just a, pretty much a hangout for himself and his friends. There was a pool table here. Um, the day we signed the lease and came in here, there was probably like 400 empty bottles of beer in the corner and a pool table and there was it there was a, a freezer for bunkers stuff like that but it was more of a social club than a real bait and tackle shop so it was never a bait and tackle shop well uh, it all depends on who you ask <laughs> but officially not really you know it was to say it was more of a social club now i think i'm safe to assume from your accent that you're not native to red hook brooklyn um, no, not at all. Um, I'm Irish originally, but I've lived here longer than I've lived there, so I would, I consider, I'm, I'm a Yank when I go home, so I don't know what I am. A bit half and half. I was taken to Red Hook in 1995, um, I remember the first night leaving Red Hook at like five o'clock in the morning and going, who the hell would live down here? And, um, I started coming here every week, and in 1997 I moved to the Red moved to the neighborhood and I've been here since. What sucked you in? What made you a permanent resident? I was going to the bar Sunny's back then, which was, which is still an amazing space um, and what an amazing family um, that has grown out of there that I'm still friends with who live in the neighborhood. And um, a broken relationship and found coming down here was cheap rent back then. The neighborhood has changed a lot, I would imagine. Uh, very, very, very much so. Um, we were spoiled for so long because it took us. It took Red Hook to be found. Um, it took it forever to be found. It was like after Sandy, we really got put on the map due to the fact of an amazing community of people coming together um, and doing stuff for each other without even asked, being asked. And um, I think people 
read about that and was like, ooh, I want to live in a place like that. So a lot of new faces coming into this bar. No, not really. Really? Um, due to the fact of the people buying up the property down here. It's like, was a two-family home is now a one-family home, and the people that have lived there for 10 years and 8 years and 12 years are the ones that are having to move out because, you know, disaster capitalism is a beautiful thing. So, yeah. Well, what inspired you to open a bar here? Um, myself and my original, my original partners. There used to be a bar in the neighborhood that was open seven days a week, Lily's, and uh, it was just it was time for another bar in the neighborhood, you know, just variety. So tell me about this space. This is an amazing space. You have some pretty incredible things along the wall here, lots of taxidermy in this bar. I don't know really how it started. My parents, I'm fourth generation bar owner, so when I was growing up in Ireland in the 70s, my parents, for some reason, was collecting taxidermy. And when they sold the bar in 1997, we had probably 250 to 300 pieces of taxidermy in the bar, and here I was, ne never thought about it. And then when we got into opening up the bar, and we had no real idea of the concept of the bar, um, my business partner at the time, Edie Stone, she went home to Indiana and called me one morning and said, I found a bear. And I was like, why? She goes, well, you know, for the bar. I was like, okay then, get it. And kind of that's where it all kind of sprung from. And then over the years, it's just people donating. It's like this was in my grandfather's cabin. He passed away. We're getting rid of it. Would you care for this? Or would you care for that? And it's kind of like it's been a very organically put together thing. Very little thought. Yeah, you have deer head. You have, I think that's a ram's head over there. Yes, that's a ram's head. Um, that skull there is from a musk, musk ox that came from Greenland. Somebody brought that. Um, this came from somebody's um, farm in Texas, the steer head. Um, you know, just I could pretty much point out a lot of stuff and say where it came from. Yeah, there's a bobcat behind you. Yeah, that bobcat, my business partner Karen bought it in Vermont a couple of years ago when she was up there. Would you say this bar is very distinctly Red Hook, the vibe here? Um, it's a lot of people's living room, so yes. I mean, a lot of people. I, myself and my business partners pay the bills, but we don't really run the place. I mean, if you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's a neighborhood. It's, you know, if you need something, this is where you come. You ask around. It's like, hey, can I borrow a drill? Or, hey, can I borrow a belt sender? Or, hey, can I borrow a car? Or, hey, I have this problem. We're trying to put something up on a wall. Who can help me? Who are your patrons? Who does this bar draw in? During the week, Sundays through Sundays through Thursdays, it's just neighborhood people. People have lived here, work here. And then at the weekends, it's people that come from, as we call it, over the Hamiltons, from Hamilton Avenue. Because at the weekends, it's, it's a beautiful walking and strolling neighborhood. And it's, you know, it's summertime in Red Hook. It's, it's a beach town. Yeah, I was going to say, how would you describe the vibe of Red Hook? Uh, very, very relaxed, um, very easygoing. You know, there's never been a problem here, like as in fights and stuff, because it gets taken care of, because, you know, everyone's like, nobody's fighting in my house, so um, it's very relaxed. Yeah, you do feel a little different when you're walking the streets here compared to other parts of Brooklyn, of course compared to Midtown Manhattan. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more light because everything's only three stories high. You know a lot of people in the neighborhood. And even people you don't know, It's it, for some reason, it just gives off this vibe of people saying hello to you on the street for no reason. You know, it's just that kind of very relaxed. And it, a, a lot of people that are moving to the neighborhood feel, are, feel that way too. 
and just sort of like, hey, I, I live in this neighborhood. Hey, how's it going? How you doing? I just moved in here. What have been some of your more memorable moments at this bar? <laughs> um, uh, none that I want to talk about. <laughs> um, I've been a very... Um, I don't need any help from anybody. I've always kind of like dealt with that. I can do everything myself. After Sandy, I became a very, very humble person. What happened during Sandy? We got two and a half feet of water here. Everything in our basement was ruined. The next morning after Sandy, um, I was here when the water started coming in. And my business partner, Karen, called me and told me to get the hell out of there. So we left. I left here. I walked home. I helped some people move stuff out of their basements. Then we invited a few people to our apartment because we were on the third floor and we ate food that was going to go bad in our freezers. Um, I came back here at 10.30 at night and there was still like two and a half foot of water here. So we opened the doors and let the water flow out. And we sort of stood here and we opened the bottle, climbed over the counter and got a bottle of whiskey and sat on the, stood in the middle of the streets and just sort of went to people's doors and gave them shots of whiskey. And the next day it was just, everyone was in shock. And... Um, Two o'clock that afternoon, somebody came and gave me two generators, and I don't know why, I just decided to uh, just plug in some lights and turn on some music, and the water didn't get high enough to get into my beer coolers, so I had all this cold beer, and at six o'clock, that, we opened at 3.30 instead of three o'clock, we were a half an hour late of opening, and at six o'clock that evening, there was 80 to 100 people in the bar who had lost everything, or some things, just dancing and hugging. And that will stay with me forever. That was the most beautiful thing ever. And, um, you know, over the next couple of weeks, it was like, this is where everybody came for. It's like, I'm going for gas tomorrow. Can somebody just, so people would bring off their gas containers and leave $20 tape to us, tape to us and their name on it. And then people would come and pick it up and take it away and then come back that night. And people would just, so it became a community center. I was going to say, what a sense of community, what a sense of people pulling together and really making the best of a horrible situation. Very much so. It was the worst and most beautiful time in my life and in a lot of other people's lives. And yeah, it was just amazing, you know. And that's what I'll take out of this room for the rest of my life. Barry, thanks so much for your time. No problem. Thanks very much. That was Barry O'Mara. He's the co-owner of Red Hook Bait and Tackle. To find out more about the bar, visit redhookbaitandtackle.com. Our next guest, Ivy Pakoda, used to live across the street from Red Hook Bait and Tackle. She's now out in California, where she joins us on the phone. Ivy wrote a book called Visitation Street, which is set in Red Hook. Ivy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. Now, your book, Visitation Street, which is a thriller, is set in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Why did you decide to use Red Hook as your backdrop? Well, I was living there at the time when I first began the uh, process of writing it, and so it just occurred to me to write about what was going on outside my window, um, literally. Um, I lived across the street from the bar and the bodega, and the apartment I describe in my book and above one of the restaurants so, um, and uh, Red Hook is a weird, isolated neighborhood, and it just seemed to lend itself to a really good story. How long did you live in Red Hook? Well, I lived in Red Hook for three years. I grew up in Cobble Hill, which is, you know, a mile and a half away, but kind of a different world. So I was familiar with Red Hook growing up, so didn't spend a lot of time there. But I lived there for three years. What prompted you to move to Red Hook in the first place? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so I grew up, as I said, in Cobble Hill, uh, and I loved it. I grew up there in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, and early 90s. And 
And then I went away to college, and after college, I moved to Amsterdam um, on a whim and stayed there for nearly seven years. And the city was just, you know, so uh, permissive and uh, interesting, and there was just so much, um, you know, you had such an ability to have your own life that wasn't dictated by having to pay a lot of rent or work in a really, you know, elite job. And um, But eventually when I wanted to move home, I uh, tried to move back to the neighborhood I grew up in or, you know, maybe Carroll Gardens or Fort Greene, and it had gotten really expensive. And it didn't sort of have that feeling of, you know, freedom that I had both as a child and when I lived in Amsterdam. So I was riding my bike around and went to Red Hook and just fell in love with it immediately. I went to a bar there that's closed, and there are all these people there and who are just, like, you don't see in the rest of Brooklyn, and it seemed like the bar wasn't exactly legally opened. Uh, I don't think they had a liquor license and um, or some kind of license. And I just thought, this is the coolest place I've ever been. What a weird intersection of community. And it felt like the Brooklyn I grew up in. So I moved there the next day. How do you describe Red Hook for those who've never been? Well, physically, it's an isolated um, slip of a neighborhood at um, the end of Brooklyn, kind of like a peninsula where the East River and the bay, the upper bay, um, meet. So it kind of looks out over um, towards the Atlantic Ocean, the Verrazano Bridge on one side, New Jersey on another side, and back towards Manhattan on another side. And it's been cut off from the rest of Brooklyn by the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, which was a highway built by Robert Moses. And that sort of annexed um, Red Hook and kind of ghettoized it in a certain way because that there's no public transportation except for a bus, the nearest subway station is miles away. So um, it is really its own place. It's hard to get in. It's hard to get out. Some people are born there, feel stuck there. Other people move there to get away from the rest of the city. But it is a very unique, isolated community. I think locally, a lot of people only know Red Hook because there's an Ikea there now. That's true. And the fairway. I hear about the fairway a lot. Uh, yeah, that is really disappointing. There's so much more to Red Hook than the Ikea. And, the, you know, there's a lot of space there. So the temptation to build box stores is kind of overwhelming for developers, I guess. But um, that Ikea, you know, I hear all the time, oh, you know, the Red Hook you describe in your book, you know, that's really all well and good. But, you know, we went to Ikea and we went to the fairway, and we took, which is a fancy grocery store. And we took the ferry there and it's so beautiful and scenic and you know, that that's definitely true, but, like, to really entrench yourself in the community, those things bear, well, the fair, not the fairway, but the Ikea, I, you know, I've never even been there. I don't hmm. even, I've never walked by it. How do you describe Red Hook in your book? You know, it's a gritty, gritty, isolated neighborhood. It was a former working class dock, longshoreman dock workers community, because it, obviously it's on the water and there was shipbuilding and you know, un- the unloading of the container ships. And that sort of industry died, as a lot of shipping has. And then the, on the other part of Red Hook are a lot of housing projects, because when Robert Moses built the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, he tore down a lot of houses and had to, there was a salute, create a solution, and that was to build housing projects. So it's divided between black and white, not rich and poor, but sort of middle class and, you know, financial people in grave financial difficulty because there's not a lot of jobs around there. But it's a fascinating place. You seem to have a pretty good grasp of the two Red Hooks, if you will, the public housing side and the other side of Red Hook. Did you spend a lot of time in both areas while you lived there? Well, I spent primarily, you know, I'd say 90% of my time at the not, not in the sort of waterfront area where there's sort of, you know, which is more, you know, white, less of um, 
there's more, more traffic in and out of there from you know, visitors and the people who work there. Um, the housing projects, I spent less time, obviously, though I did befriend two people who uh, had grown up in the housing projects and had never moved out of Red Hook. And I talked to them all the time. And, I, you know, one of them, he uh, works at the local prison, and he uh, invited us over for barbecues and dinners and to meet his family. And, you know, you just you wind up walking through the projects a lot on your way to the ball fields or the pool. or So I didn't really, you know, I wouldn't say that I, there was by any stretch of the imagination a balance between the time I spent in the two different places. But um, I felt comfortable enough to write about it. You know, I've been, I've mentored young, a young girl who grew up in Harlem and near a housing project. So I had some sense of what that kind of life was like. For the most part, the street names in your book are true to life, with the exception of the title, right? Visitation Street? Yes. So, um, well, there's a visitation place, and it is next to Pioneer Street. And Pioneer Street is where I set my book and where I live. And that is physically where Visitation Street is on the map. And the reason I did that was not because I thought the word visitation was somehow atmospheric. That all came later when I realized there was a ghostly or haunting element. But in Jonathan Leatham's Fortress of Solitude, which was a hugely inspirational book to me, and it's set basically in the neighborhood where I grew up, he switches two street names. He switches Amity Street with, I believe, uh, Congress or Warren, with uh, Warren Street, no, Congress Street. And uh, he just moves this park, this little vest pocket park that's directly across from my house. He moves it one block up. And I believe he did it on purpose. And it just had the effect when I read it to say, okay, this is the Brooklyn I recognize, but this is also the Brooklyn of his invention. Mm-hmm. And um, when I wrote the first draft of Visitation Street, I changed the name of the whole neighborhood from Red Hook to Dutch Basin. I changed the names of all the parks and the streets. And then I left, when I changed it back, I left that one because it is the way Red Hook is in my mind, but it's also my invention. So I don't ever want anyone to say, well, you didn't get it right because ultimately I'm not trying to get it right. It's my version. The book revolves around two 15-year-old girls. They go out into the water on an inflatable raft. One goes missing. Where did you draw that story from while you were in Red Hook? You know, it's so funny. I have no idea, and no one has ever asked me that question. I've talked about this book a lot. Um, I don't know where I got that idea from. I got the inspiration to open with something like dramatic like that from a book written by Ian McEwen called Enduring Love that opens with this balloon accident. And the balloon accident sort of informs the rest of the book but doesn't have a lot to do with it. As it turns out, the girls in the raft have a lot to do with the rest of my book. But I was sort of stuck in the writing of it, and I was writing more about, you know, the scenes in the bar and the housing project. And and I just wanted to take a break and write something that was a self-standing piece about Red Hook. And I was inspired by Enduring Love, that balloon accident, and that's the story I came up with. I uh, wanted to write something tragic. So I, I don't know exactly where the idea of taking the raft out in the water came from, but I think it was what kind of tragedy could two girls get involved in. You now live in L.A. I would imagine a whole world different than Red Hook, Brooklyn, huh? It certainly is, though, you know, there are some elements here in Los Angeles that really appeal to me um, in the same way that the Brooklyn that I grew up in appeals to me in Red Hook. There are, you know, neighborhoods, the one I live in now in the middle of the city, which are very um, mixed in terms of socioeconomic, you know, qualities and different races and ethnicities. And there is not, there are places you can still live in LA that are not, you know, as expensive as Brooklyn and um, where you can still sort of, you know, find your way as opposed to having to have already made it to be there. And my neighborhood is this very weird community of people who really believe in bringing this neighborhood, this formerly historic neighborhood back. 
And there's a real sense of community and investment in, you know, the life here, which is sort of what I miss. And, you know, I know everyone on my block and we say hello to each other and hang out on each other's front porches, you know, in the evenings. And so that is, you know, more similar to New York than um, I think L.A. is often given credit for. All right, Ivy, thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. I'm so glad we had a chance to chat. Ivy Pakoda is the author of Visitation Street, a novel set in Red Hook, Brooklyn. You can learn more about Ivy and her book at ivypakoda.com. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Next, we head out onto the water in Red Hook, specifically onto a barge, the last wooden barge in New York Harbor. It not only serves as a museum, but also the home of its captain. I am David Sharps, and I'm the president of the museum and captain of the Lehigh Valley 79, uh, docked here now at our home port in Red Hook, Brooklyn. So tell me about this barge. What's the history here? Well, the barge is a last and only remaining vessel of its kind left afloat. Uh, it's the last of a vestige of eras, era when we move goods by railroad. Um, as you know, New York City is an island, a, a port of made up of islands, and uh, prior to the bridges and tunnels that crisscross this area, it was still a very, very active port. The port was basically founded by its waterways. This barge would have been used to carry general merchandise from a pier around New York City where a ship would have come in with goods and it would have taken it to the railhead terminal over by where today is Liberty State Park and the home of the Lehigh Valley Railroad operations that could then take goods up into uh, the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. Hence the name of this barge. Yes, good to realize that there were 13 railroads that served the port of New York with all the wonderful names of the New York Central and the Erie, the Lackawanna, the Delaware, the Hudson, I mean all these different lines. The motto of the port of New York was that every railroad could visit every ship in the port of New York. So once goods came in, the railroads that were going to be sending their goods went and picked them up with a barge usually to because you couldn't get there from here if you you know otherwise and they we would take their goods with a tug and a barge and take them back to uh, the sheds that the trains would pull in where they would be once again loaded by the stevedoring companies that had the longshoremen that would then uh, pack the railroad cars and they would go on their way to uh, uh, south or west or wherever their destination would be. This barge was built in 1914, so it's 101 years old this year. It was built uh, completely out of longleaf yellow pine uh, with all of its structural members at Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And this barge's capacity is to carry 300 tons of cargo. Wow, that's a lot of cargo. It is. It was enough to pack anywhere from 15 to 20 railroad cars with the goods that would then go on their way. So what's the story as to how this barge ended up here in Red Hook, Brooklyn? Well, that's a fun story. 
I got the barge for a dollar back. Wait, a dollar? Uh, uh, yes, uh, back in 1985. Uh, these were being torn out by the Army Corps of Engineers. They laid in various stages of decay along the mud banks of the Hudson River. Containerization had made them useless, obsolete. They were being used for clubhouses, for boat clubs, they sea scouts. Some marinas were using them as kind of building a breakwater so that the, they could then use the sheltered areas as a little harbor for boat clubs. But, you know, people had, A, given up on wood. There is a metal generation of barges after this. But because of uh, containerization, they were put out of work. They no longer needed to transfer a lot of goods across the river. It was all being, you know, taken right off the containers, and our transportation mode of choice was our trucks and our bridges and our tunnels. So you bought this barge for a buck from who? I bought it from a pile driver, um, a dock builder who was using it as storage. Uh, He had had it for, I think, probably about 10 years or so, and it had been sunk the last couple years, maybe seven years. It had filled with 300 tons of mud. Now, today, this barge is not only a museum. This is also your home. You live on this barge. That's correct. Uh, this is, well, I'm the owner and the caretaker and the night watchman. David, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. David Sharps is the president of the Waterfront Museum and captain of the Lehigh Valley Number no. 79, docked in Red Hook, Brooklyn. To learn more, visit waterfrontmuseum.org. Our next guest grew up surrounded by much warmer waters than those in New York City, so perhaps it's no surprise that he makes pies in Red Hook, Brooklyn, that are typically associated with tropical environments. Steve Tarpin owns Steve's Authentic Key Lime Pies. He joins us on the phone this morning. Steve, thanks for taking the time. No problem. It's my pleasure. So how long have you been in the key lime pie-making business in Red Hook, Brooklyn? Overall, we just hit the 20-year mark last October, and we moved into Red Hook in '01. Where did you move from? About a mile away. We were down at Columbia Street in the waterfront uh, district there. What inspired you to get into making key lime pies? Well, growing up in Miami, I was inspired by the fact that I couldn't find a decent one anywhere. So there's always uh, access to backyard variety of key limes. So I just started making them myself. Where do you get your key limes today to make your pies? We get them from Mexico. Uh, they actually they haven't been harvested in the U.S. since the 1930s. You know, like I said, you you can get access to them, but someone's got a tree in their yard or anything. But on a commercial level, they haven't been. Uh, harvested here in the U.S. for quite a while. Are people surprised when they learn that there's a key lime pie-making business in Red Hook, Brooklyn? I think they're delighted. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, some people are surprised. I've been socially uh, scorned for having a limited menu on some of the uh, reviewing sites, uh, which I find to be kind of uh, ironic because it like I said, we, we hit the 20-year part, so we're doing something right. By limited menu, you mean you only make key lime pies, right? Yes. Primarily, we're a commercial bakery. We have a, we have a small little storefront down here uh, that we try and keep regular hours on the weekends, and we're pretty good at keeping irregular hours during the week. But it's, it's more of a, a, a service to mankind. 
What would you say separates your pies from any other key lime pie out there? Well, for one thing, we're the only ones, aside from another commercial bakery in Georgia, we are the only key lime pie baker that uses fresh key limes. So the rest of them, they're using either uh, Persian limes or they're using the bottled mystery juice, which I've said is uh, good for stripping paint, removing rust, but it doesn't belong in food. Hmm. And we do everything, uh, we still do small batches. Uh, Our 10-inch pie crusts are still made by hand. And the only glue that holds our uh, crumbs together is butter. And, uh, you know, they're, they're using pre-made crust. They're using, uh, I don't know, it's highly processed. Uh, it arrives with a like a little white whip topping on it that actually reads like a science project. Uh, we sell ours naked because we feel like, you know, it deserves, if you're going to top it, it deserves to be topped with fresh whipped cream. Does it make it any easier to get through New York winters when you're making key lime pies? No. <laughs> Someone was in here yesterday and they asked, uh, are you open year-round? And I said, you know, there's nothing more that I'd like to tell you that you know, we close for the winter and we go down to the Keys to go fishing. But uh, no, we're here. I know that a couple of years ago, Superstorm Sandy took a toll on Red Hook. Did it affect your business? Yeah, we were about three feet underwater. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, but as you know, the, the community in Red Hook's pretty tough. I think it's kind of appropriate that the only bakery making key lime pies that got struck by a hurricane would be ours up here in Brooklyn. I think it's, uh, you know, we deserve it. There's irony in there, no doubt. There is. <laughs> Steve, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That was Steve Tarpin. He's the owner of Steve's Authentic Key Lime Pies in Red Hook, Brooklyn. They're online at stevesauthentic.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listeners supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.